by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Moody's Talks Inside Emerging Markets, and I'm your host, Rahul Ghosh, coming to you from the UK. Emerging markets continue to face pretty sizable challenges as we enter into the final few months of 2020. In fact, according to a recent Moody's poll of market participants, rising government debt burdens and a second wave of the coronavirus are the biggest threats to EM credit over the next six months. And this is followed by concerns over renewed market volatility and depressed commodity prices. So in this podcast series, I speak with Moody's analysts to provide a fresh perspective on how this constellation of risks will affect governments, banks and companies from across the globe. Coming up on today's show, Mexico has suffered steep job losses since the outbreak of the coronavirus, and this has exacerbated the country's economic malaise. The road to a full employment recovery will likely be long, and this will carry negative credit effects for Mexico's state governments, companies, and the country's banking sector. If we just look at the unemployment rate of about 5%, we don't really get a complete picture of what actually happened. Uh, It is more likely to be in the neighborhood of 30%, which is quite an astonishing rate of unemployment for any country, uh, including Mexico, if you look at it historically. But first, Concerns around the legitimacy of August presidential elections in Belarus, which resulted in the re-election of incumbent Alexander Lukashenko, have led to sweeping protests in the country. In addition to concerns over the lack of democratic freedoms, the protests are also a general reflection of increasing public dissatisfaction with the authorities, including the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. So for more, I'm joined from London by Evan Woolman of Moody's Sovereign Team. Evan, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Rahul. Very good to be here. Okay, so how is heightened political instability affecting Belarus's sovereign credit profile? As you say, we have seen unprecedentedly large protests in Belarus, and there does remain quite a high degree of uncertainty around how the current political situation will develop. I mean, in our view, prolonged political instability, in particular, if we saw the protests which, as you say, have been very large in recent weeks, being sustained, or if there were to be a further escalation in tensions between protesters and the authorities, such as a more severe crackdown by the authorities on peaceful protesters, that could weigh on Belarus's credit profile. And in particular, risk disrupting what has been a delicate domestic political balance in place since the mid-1990s. Mm, so mass protests you know, have clearly raised domestic political risks, but they're also causing large business disruptions. So how large do you think the fallout will be for the domestic economy? I think that is a point worth exploring because the disruption caused by the large protests have certainly compounded the negative economic effect from the coronavirus pandemic which has already hit Belarus's large and important oil refinery sector. 
Now, there have been calls for strikes by the protesters in the large state-owned enterprise or SOE sector, and this could further compound the economic disruption that we've seen. I think it's worth just reiterating the important role played by the public enterprise sector in Belarus. Social security uh, to large parts of the population is provided through secure employment in these public enterprises. And so this is an important mechanism for the state and strikes in these public enterprises could further increase pressure on the country's leadership, but could also have quite serious economic consequences given that if you look at the total SOE sector in Belarus, according to some estimates, this sector can account for around one-third of economic activity and employment. I think furthermore, there is a a risk that we could also see more severe economic disruption if there were to be new wide-scale sanctions from Western partners, such as from the European Union. Yeah, let's explore that a little bit further. Clearly, political developments haven't gone uh, unnoticed globally. Uh, Evan, what do you think some of the implications will be from elevated political risks uh, with respect to Belarus's relationships with the international community? Well, I think if we take a step back, the heightened political instability has certainly strained ties with Belarus's Western partners. And this will likely further impact on economic integration with the European Union, but also with the United States. And we had seen steps towards increased integration in recent uh, uh, months and years. Now, it's important to put this integration with Western countries into context. Belarus still remains very reliant on Russia. Russia is its largest trading partner and is the source of almost all fossil fuel imports for Belarus's important oil refinery sector. But as I say, there has been increase in economic and financial ties with some Western countries in recent years. And if we just look at the European Union, there have been steps to begin negotiations on a new framework agreement. Now, great integration with bodies like the European Union with countries that form part of of that bloc has credit advantages for Belarus, both in terms of increase in trade and investment, obviously, but also serving as a counterweight to Belarus's high dependence on on Russia. But as I say, a further strengthening in these ties now appears unlikely in the near term, particularly given that the European Union is ready to introduce new sanctions on Belarus as a result of of the current tensions. I think it's also worth saying that the heightened political instability may limit access to new sources of concessional financing for Belarus from the West, such as from the International Monetary Fund. Now, we've seen Belarus already apply for around $900 million in assistance from the International Monetary Fund through its rapid financing instrument, and that now looks unlikely to be approved. Thanks, Evan. Let's finish on the financing picture for Belarus. Given some of these concerns that you've you've laid out today, uh, to what extent should investors be concerned about refinancing risks for the sovereign uh, over the course of this year and next? Well, certainly the fact that we're expecting reduced funding from international financial institutions such as the IMF will further increase Belarus's reliance on funding from Russia which we have seen in the past can be subject to disruption, as well as China. 
I mean, if you just look at Russia and China together, they're the source for around 65% of Belarus's public debt. So these are the two most important creditors for, for Belarus. Um, and we've also seen recent statements by the Russian Ministry of Finance, which indicate Russia would consider any request by Belarus for refinancing of those Russian loans. Now, that said, we do expect refinancing risks will remain manageable, and that's for a number of reasons. Although we've seen foreign exchange reserves in Belarus fall during the course of 2020, the country did start the year with a record high level of foreign exchange reserves. And if you include that together with the savings from budget surpluses in recent years, this does help provide a degree of buffer. I would also point to the new Eurobond issuance in the middle of this year, which had to be postponed from the first quarter given the dislocation in financial markets. And I think this new Eurobond issuance has helped to alleviate immediate pressures on government liquidity. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing your insights with us today, Evan. Next up, we turn our attention to Mexico, Latin America's second largest economy, where substantial job losses during the coronavirus pandemic will take a heavy toll on the country's economic growth, its productivity and levels of household income. So for more, I'm really pleased to be joined by Hassan Zarita of our Credit Strategy and Research team and lead author of a recent report on this topic. Welcome, Hassan. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Raul. So why do you think that the jobs recovery in Mexico will take longer to play out, say, compared to north of the border in the U.S.? Yes, uh, job losses in Mexico, you know, during the initial months of the lockdown were quite enormous. If we just look at the unemployment rate of about 5%, we don't really get a complete picture of what actually happened. Uh, it is more likely to be in the neighborhood of 30%, which is quite an astonishing rate of unemployment for any country, uh, including Mexico, if you look at it historically. The reasons we think that Mexico will, will probably take longer to recover are three mainly. One is that Mexico was already in recession uh, by the time the lockdown measures were implemented. Uh, so that recessionary momentum really did not help the situation there. The second reason is that the pandemic uh, hit hard three of Mexico's most important sectors, including oil and gas, manufacturing and tourism. And the third reason is that uh, the policy support measures implemented by the current government to mitigate the effects of the lockdown were really quite modest. Uh, it was recently estimated in the neighborhood of 0.7% of GDP. That is very low when you compare it against Brazil, Peru, Chile, which uh, are spending more in the neighborhood of between 7 and 9% of GDP. And then also compared with the U.S., the U.S. has been spending a tremendous amount uh, of resources supporting large firms, including airlines that employ thousands of people. So those are among the reasons we think that Mexico will really lag neighbors and, and also including the US. Thanks, Hassan. Well, you mentioned a couple of sectors there that have seen a particularly sizable fallout from the pandemic. Going forward, which sectors do you see as most vulnerable to elevated levels of unemployment across the country? So oil and gas was very severely hit. Um, there has been, over the last few years, kind of a retrenchment in private investment in that particular sector. And then with a the hit on uh, oil prices and gas prices, this uh, was accentuated even more. 
construction is quite large for Mexico, particularly uh, commercial residential construction, that there was an immediate hit as soon as the pandemic outbreak began. And then global tourism, which is very important for Mexico, came to a standstill. So areas like Cancun, like Baja California, they have been very severely affected with hotels, restaurants not operating. So those are you know regions that have been hit very hard with hundreds and thousands of uh, job losses. Okay, so let's talk about the regional perspective. And in particular, how are Mexican states coping with a weak jobs market on the one hand, and of course, a protracted economic recovery on the other? Yeah, it's been very difficult for them. Mexican states rely on payroll taxes for the revenue that they raise themselves outside of the uh, federal revenue sharing mechanisms. And these payroll taxes represent on average uh, 70% of the own source, as we call it, own source revenue. We expect that these will decline by 10% on average this year, which is quite significant. The hope, though, is that the revenue stabilization funds uh, set up by the government, the federal government, will help to at least mitigate some of that uh, revenue loss. And the good thing is that some of these stabilization funds were set up by the country, recognizing that you know a big source for the revenue in the fund is oil or related to oil, which has a volatile oil price. So there was a little bit of forethought in setting up these funds. And that's going to uh, help to mitigate a little bit this 10% decline in, in payroll tax collections. Perhaps finally, Hassan, I'd like to get your thoughts on the impact of labor market weakness on the asset quality for Mexican banks. Uh, how much of a concern is this? And if it is, which institutions do you see as most exposed? That, I think, is a very good question because consumer credit availability in Mexico is very low, uh, particularly for a country of Mexico's size. Um, it's probably, you know, credit penetration in Mexico, it's probably lower than what we see in much smaller Central American countries. The good side of that is that that small exposure limits the risk for the banks. Um, so we don't expect to see widespread uh, asset deterioration, you know, systemically speaking. There will be pockets of the banking system, particularly those that you know, focus on low-income individuals through payroll tax kind of lending that will probably be affected. And in particular, the ones that are focusing on public sector employees also through payroll lending, they shouldn't be quite as affected because we don't expect uh, public sector employment to go down. Now, in Mexico, like in other countries, we won't really see the extent of deterioration until probably toward the end of the first quarter next year. There have been long repayment holidays implemented during the pandemic. So we don't see yet, uh, you know, the effect in the data from the banks or the banking system. But undoubtedly, there will probably be a deterioration which will become more visible uh, as we move into the next year. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Hassan. We'll be sure to keep a close watch on Mexico's recovery prospects over the coming weeks and months. And thank you all for listening. This has been Moody's Talks Inside Emerging Markets. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed today's show and you'd like to learn more about our research and upcoming events, you can go to moody's.com forward slash emerging markets to find out more. But until next time, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.